There it goes, deep into center field, way, way back goes Matty Alou, and that ball is in Astro orbit. And the little dynamo, the toy cannon, now has 76 runs batted into the year. What a shock. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to episode eight of Toy Cannon Cannon. I'm Vic Ragupathy. I'm Jacob Wessels. And today we've got another special guest. Uh, last week, Jacob had his stepbrother on, and we are keeping it in the family again today. Uh, I've got my brother on here, so why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. I'm Varun. I'm Vic's older brother. Uh, I went to Syracuse University. I graduated in 2016. Sports broadcasting is kind of my specialty, but I do other things related to writing and PR and marketing and different stuff like that, but always around both media and sports, so I'm very excited to hop on this podcast and get to talk a little bit about all that and then some more stuff as well. Yeah. So we've got two members of, uh, of, of Penn media here. That we do. Yep. Yeah. Varun, was it, uh, was it difficult at all this spring? I mean, everyone's had their thing that's been affected by the pandemic. And so you missed out on most of a season of Colin Penn lacrosse. Yeah, yeah, Penn lacrosse, baseball, softball, anything that comes in the spring. And then just got most of the basketball season finished. Obviously, that's conversation for a different time. But right around mid-March, everything kind of stopped. And so fortunately, it hasn't been an issue financially, but it's definitely been an issue in terms of passion and just wanting to get back out there and call games and then just see games. I know we have the Bundesliga on, and that's kind of the big thing that's been going on the last couple of weekends. But Hopefully things start to trickle down to the smaller levels, but not a moment too soon, however. Yeah. Personally for us, we've been following the KBO a lot. Yes. Yes. And it's uh, just good to see how they all call the games at home as well. And it's just like different in terms of you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be okay with trotting on other people's feet at times, you know, it's just going to happen when it's communication this way. Yeah. Are you doing anything to sort of stay, you know, loose to stay, uh, to, to keep your chops sort of in shape uh, in terms of broadcasting? Well, I think uh, just being on uh, my friend's podcast um, the other day was like, man, I would just love to talk every day in a way where it's recorded and it's structured and that kind of gets you your reps. So it's not necessarily sitting in front of a computer screen and calling old highlights. I don't really like to do that uh, anymore, but I definitely just enjoy talking and conversing and then, doing it in a way where you can record it, listen back to it and see I can get better at it. So in that sense, getting those reps, I think is definitely going to be the way that I keep myself mentally, technically sharp. Awesome. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're going to hop right into it. Let's do it. And now the runner taking over is the speedster Herb Washington. Herb Washington, a world-class sprinter, holds a world indoor record in the 50, 100-yard dashes. He is now running for Joe Rudy at first base. Marshall, for a right-hander, is very quick in coming over to first base. Three to two, Los Angeles. Herb Washington at first. They got got him. him. Yes, Marshall picked him up. Yesterday, I kind of posed myself a question because I was trying to find something that we could tweet out to our hundreds of new Twitter followers. And I stumbled across a random thing on baseball reference or, or something that I, I, had, I had often looked at, which is the baseball career of former Panthers linebacker Shaq Thompson, which is, you know, a story for another time, but one of the worst baseball careers ever. He had 43 plate appearances and struck out like 37 times and whatever. 
But I noticed that despite having never gotten a hit, he managed to score three runs. And I was wondering how many times this had happened, right? He, where people don't get hits, but they're able to accrue, you know, other sorts of counting stats, you know, RBIs, runs, stolen bases, that kind of stuff. And so I you know, went on the baseball reference play index and I kind of tried to find it. And so the first thing I was interested in is RBIs. Like, can you, you know, pick up a bunch of RBIs without getting a hit? And the answer is no. Um, there's a guy who has like four RBIs, but they're all pitchers. They were just like, I think, sacrifice bunted guys in basically. And they didn't pick up a hit for the season, but they got three or four RBIs. But if you search by runs, you get, you know, quite the, the bevy of results. And the guy at the top of that list is a man by the name of Herb Washington, who managed to score 29 runs in the 1974 season without recording a hit. And this is a story that actually is kind of more popular than I thought it was, because I never heard of it before yesterday. And then in doing my research for today, I realized that it was actually quite surprising that I'd never heard this story, because not only was there an athletic article written about him two days ago, he was the lead on Effectively Wild yesterday, and there's just all sorts of Herb Washington content out there that's come out in the last couple of days. So now I kind of feel like I'm, I'm last to the table when, when I discovered this yesterday. I was, I was kind of shocked and surprised that it was, it was you know, something I'd never heard of. And so, you know, the question becomes, you know, how and why is Herb Washington a professional baseball player if he scores 29 runs and has no hits? And that's because he is one of the many projects of famed Oakland Athletics owner, Charlie Finley, um, dubbed the designated runner. And so basically he thought that coming off of back-to-back World Series, the A's were so good with 24 guys. The 25th guy didn't necessarily need to be someone who could play baseball and could just be someone who could do a very gimmicky, like one-off skill. And so that one-off skill was going to be, you know, pinch running. So it was a late game, pinch runner, steal a base, score run, that kind of stuff. And so Herb Washington is, um, quite frankly, one of the fastest people on earth at the time. So he was the, he was the world record holder in the 50 and 60-yard dash. He set those records in college. He was drafted by the Baltimore Colts to kind of do the same thing, just be really fast and play football. But he didn't want to play football, so he turned them down. And then he got his contract offer from the Oakland Athletics, and he decided to accept that contract to play in the major leagues. Now, um, there's a few things to note about him. He had not played baseball since junior high, so he does not have a tremendous amount of baseball background. And so there was a lot of you know, you know, consternation about when he was signed, especially given the details of how, how much he signed for. So... You know, what, what kind of money do you think, do you think this guy would be paid? League minimum? Is he, is he making, you know, you know, what kind of money is he making? I don't know, maybe like 50000 a year, considering 70s? Considering 70s. Well, 50000 a year is, is a very good guess because he made $45,000 plus a $20,000 signing bonus. So it's like 65000 so that's 65. Do you know where it would take, where it would be in terms of like, is that vet minimum, is 45K vet minimum in the 70s? So I looked it up. Reggie Jackson, the year before, made $55,000. Oh, my God. Now, he, now, Reggie Jackson got a huge pay increase in 74. Right. So it's not that fun as a statistic. Right. So Reggie Jackson ended up making $170,000 in, in, in 74. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, whatever. But basically, he was getting Reggie Jackson money. The league average salary was $40,000 all in. He was making sixty five dollars 
the minimum was like 20,000. So he was making almost three times the minimum. And not only did he get a, uh, a, a contract of, of large stature, he also had a, a, a clause in the contract that he couldn't be demoted, he couldn't be cut, and he couldn't be traded. So the Oakland Athletics were going to pay him this money, and they couldn't send him down, and they had to use it, basically, for an entire major league season. And so this is an absurd contract to give to a guy who, again, hasn't played baseball since he was in middle school. Like, I mean, it's, it's I mean, he hasn't played baseball for, like, a, a real team. Apparently, he played, like, some club baseball in college. But, like, he basically hasn't played, you know, real team baseball in, in a long time. And... There was another stipulation in this contract, which is that he had to grow facial hair before the beginning of the season. That was another one of Charlie Finley's things. All the players had facial hair. So in order to get the guaranteed contract, he had to have facial hair, but he couldn't grow facial hair. So, you know, fearing that he was going to lose the money, he ended up using a colored pencil and an eyebrow pencil to kind of shade in a mustache. <laughs> and so that's how he ended up getting a mustache to, to, to make the Oakland A's uh, out of spring training. But, you know, one of the most interesting things to me about this is, you know, how did the team receive it? Because obviously this is one of the best teams in baseball, and now they're kind of being subjected to this, you know, gimmick. And so, you know, the players on the team were, were kind of mixed emotions. So they all kind of knew that he, they, all were, they were all really, you know, excited about how fast he was. Raleigh Fingers was like, this guy is the fastest person I've ever seen. Bert Campanera said that, you know, this guy was definitely going to steal a base that won us a game at some point. But they all kind of also acknowledge that he's an outstanding athlete, but he is not a baseball player. Like, not only is he not a baseball player, but, like, he can barely play baseball. He couldn't identify pickoff moves. He couldn't identify pitch types. Like, so he comes to spring training that season, and Charlie Finley brings in Maury Wills to kind of be a base running instructor just for him. And so during spring training, while everyone else is doing, you know, normal spring training things, uh, Herb Washington is just doing running drills. He's learning about reading pitches. He's learning about how far to turn, when to turn, you know, how to accelerate when, when you know, running the bases, not to take too wide of a route. You know, do, but the rest of the team is taking bratting practice. He's just in the outfield running back and forth, basically, doing all sorts of running drills. And so that kind of you know, made him a bit of a pariah because not only is he not a baseball player, he's not really doing the rest of the stuff with the team. Right, like that he's not getting to bond with the team in the same way where they're all doing the same drills and they're all doing you know, all that kind of stuff together. He doesn't even have a position group. He's, he's, a, he's a runner, you know? And so, and so, you know, he got a lot of, he got a lot of shit from his teammates. But eventually he kind of realized that if he was gonna, you know, receive all this shit for, for what he was doing and you know, what he was trying, he was just gonna have to give it right back to them. And so, you know, it was kind of unheard of that rookies would be talking back to vets. The, you know, like, this is kind of the, the prime era of, like, vet, he's veteran hazing of rookie players. And all of a sudden, Herb Washington just started, you know, talking a bunch of smack at him. So he got caught stealing once, and Gene Tennis was like, you can't steal for shit. And he was like, well, you couldn't throw me out. And, you know, he was just doing things that at the time people were like, oh, my God, I, can you believe the gall of this rookie? Especially this rookie who can't play baseball. People were saying that if you would if you had not known anything about the team and you'd been around the team, you would have thought Herb Washington was the longest tenured guy on the ball club. Because even though he couldn't play baseball, he just walked in like he owned the place. Because he knew he had one skill that nobody else had, and that is that you know if you're a even if you're a good baseball player, you know you're going to have your bad days, you're going to have your good days. Every single day, he was the fastest man to walk onto the field because he might have been the fastest man on the 
so, you know, this kind of came to a head um, when, when he, you know, raced Blue Moon Odom. So we've talked about races between players on the podcast before, uh, most famously with Lip Pike when he raced a horse. Um, and this was kind of the same premise, that Blue Moon Odom basically was sick of how much shit her Washington was talking, especially about how fast he is. So he said, I'm going to race you and I'm going to win. And Gene Tennis kind of acted as a promoter for the race. He was like making t-shirts. He was, you know, doing promotional stuff in the clubhouse. I don't know. I don't, apparently he was promoting it like it was a fight in the clubhouse. The manager was, was like on board with it. It was a whole thing about the team. And they get the two guys out in the stadium one day after a game. And Washington says he'll give uh, Blue Moon Odom a 10-yard head start. And so Blue Moon Odom thinks he's got to walk in the park. He takes off, he starts running, he kind of gets around second base, he still has a pretty substantial lead. They're doing a race around the bases. Um, and then, you know, apparently Herb Washington hadn't even turned on the Jets. He was just kind of jogging. And right as Blue Moon Odom touches second base, Herb Washington turns on the Jets. And before Blue Moon Odom can even get to third, Herb Washington has already flown past him. And so it was kind of, you know, like the beat the freeze style thing, where then Blue Moon Odom was like, oh shit, because he almost like wiped out apparently because he was so surprised by how quickly he was overtaken. What's crazy here is Blue Moon Odom's a pitcher, right? Yeah. So he's a pitcher. I mean, he has actually, Blue Moon Odom also appears on this list uh, of, of guys who have lots of runs without hits because the A's used him as a pinch runner. He was, you know, considered to be one of the fastest guys. I mean, he's just an outstanding athlete. Also was, not the first uh, pitcher used as a pinch runner that we've seen on, on the podcast. Yeah, 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 right. But, um, but he was kind of regularly, regularly used as a pitch, run, pitch runner in some capacity. He was a great athlete. He was probably the second fastest guy on the team, according to most players, which is, you know, fascinating coming out of a pitcher. But um, so, you know, he kind of stands up to these guys. He, you know, he finds his, his place on the team. But one of the things to me that's, that's fascinating about the Herb Washington story is that, like, even though he was really fast and even though he spent all of spring training learning how to play baseball and learning how to read pitches and, and you know, learning how to do all of that stuff, he was still pretty bad as a pinch runner. Like, he stole 29 bags, scored 29 runs, but he was also caught stealing 16 times, which is like, you steal 65% of your bases. Like, that's not good. And he was picked off even more than that. Apparently he got picked off all the time because he just like didn't, he couldn't figure out the difference between a balk and like a pickoff move. And so people just kind of kept taking advantage of that by doing these pickoff moves that like he called like balk moves, but probably were technically legal that someone with more baseball expertise might have might have been able to, you know, know. And so it kind of proved that, you know, even if he's so fast, there's not a lot of room for him in baseball. So did you get any details on why he chose baseball over football? Because football can be more instinctual. Like if he's just a running back, he could much more easily slide in. Is it a health thing? Is it a money thing? Well, I mean, first of all, he got paid much more money to play baseball. But also he got the football contract almost a year and a half before the baseball contract. I think it's mostly that he just didn't want to play football. There's not a ton of details about, you know, his football career out there. So, um, so what year, what was the specific year that was his rookie year? 74 is his rookie year. Okay. So that, okay. That's perfect because not only is this guy talking shit, he's talking shit to the two time champs. This is pre free agency. So everybody in that clubhouse has rings, right? And this guy comes in and he's getting paid more than these champions and he's talking shit. And as you've stated, he's not particularly good at the one thing that he's paid all that money to do. It's just a fascinating story. 
It's so weird. But the thing about it is that despite the fact that he wasn't that good, people still talk about him like he kind of was that good, which is like, I don't know if like stolen base, you know, stolen bases was hard to come by in the 70s or, or like, or what exactly was happening. Because it doesn't, I mean, his numbers are bad, but people, I think, were just impressed by the idea that he was, you know, scoring, you know, all these runs and stealing all these bases. And, and kind of in a small ball era of baseball, his speed was considered game-changing, even if he wasn't always successful at stealing bases. He, you know, he created runs other ways. Because, I mean, people didn't, you know, people always got on, gave him shit for his blunders. But even the guys in the A's who were, like, the most hardline guys were like, this guy, you know, made some plays for us. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, if he joins in 74, I don't know what kind of role he played on their three-peat team, but, I mean, he was still on it, so. Yeah, he has a World Series ring. Yeah. So, so I'll get to his, uh, his World Series appearance in a minute. But he started off the year really awfully. And I think that's another reason why people kind of, you know, think of him as being maybe a bit more successful. He was caught four of his first five attempts which if you, you know, kind of do that, if you take out, you know, the inexperience of, of his first couple months, all of a sudden you, you know, kind of get a more respectable ratio of like 28 to 12, which yeah. you know, is not great, but it, it at least makes more sense. And then he also kind of apparently got banged up at the end of the year. So he was a little bit slower and he got caught more at the end of the year, but he had a stretch in the middle of the season where he went like 22 basically. And I think that's when people were really like, oh, shit, this guy is game changing. Whenever he gets on, he can steal whatever base he wants. But he made the playoff roster, and that really pissed off some of the guys because they were like, look, we're good enough to win games. In the regular season, you know, we can, we can you know, manage with this. But now it's playoff time. Now we're, like, you know, getting serious. We can't have this gimmicky pinch runner guy who's going to make a base running gaff that costs us the World Series. And he almost did. In game two of the World Series, he got picked off by Mike Marshall uh, in, a, in a kind of well-known play. There's a, Vince Scully calls it, the clip is still on YouTube if you, if you want to go back to watch it. They, they showed it in the Effectively Wild episode. But basically, Marshall just kept throwing over to first because he knew that eventually he was going to be able to pick him off. And it's the World Series. So Marshall just threw over to first like five straight times. And eventually, her Washington just kept making his lead bigger and bigger because he kept getting back, and he's like a cocky guy. So he's like, you're not going to get me. You can't touch me. You can't touch me. And eventually, he gets picked off. And that was the end of, of kind of the end of the Herb Washington experiments because everyone was just so pissed off about that. And it kind of was embarrassing on the national stage that they kind of had this guy who just completely looked lost on the base paths. And they were like, how they, – like, it basically was like a you know, disrespect to baseball. Like, this guy – has no right to be on a baseball field and that kind of was shown to a national audience for the first time mm -hmm. and so he came back uh the next season but then was kind of cut very early in the year he didn't get his guaranteed contract that year um he was cut 13 games into the season and and that was the end of the herb washington experiment but he ended his career with 33 runs 31 stolen bases and zero plate appearances which is really something else to look at and that's all of the stats that he accrued. I mean, he also caught stealings, but that's it. Um, if you're wondering kind of how more advanced numbers reflected on him, he was worth negative one base running runs, according to baseball reference. He was worth negative 0.5 war. Although, you know, a lot of the war that's baked in there is, um, is just negative war from not playing defense, basically. Um, because 
he's penalized for not playing, you know, not doing, he's basically penalized for wasting roster spots. Uh, his base running was actually more neutral, but because he just did, couldn't do anything else, he was worth a negative half a win. Um, and according to fan graphs, his win probability added was actually slightly positive. It was 0 0.06. So I mean, that's basically nothing, but he helped them win more games than he cost them. So at worst, he was probably a roster spot neutral player when adjusted for, you know, context of his steals and stuff. Um, so was he always put in just in the ninth or were there ever times where he was put in sort of mid game and he actually had to go out there and play or was he immediately just subbed out? He never, he never did anything other than run the bases. He, he didn't have a glove. They had to, that's actually a story that they had him running in the outfield. Uh, when he was running in the outfield, he was always so scared of getting hit by a fly ball. He was like dodging them. So they gave him a glove to just wear while he was running so he could catch fly balls and he couldn't catch them either. Like he would like keep muffing them and stuff. And so then he decided to get rid of the glove. And so he just didn't have a glove. So, I mean, like he couldn't do anything else. He, he came in sometimes earlier in games. His earliest ever appearance was the fifth inning, but he was always immediately lifted. He never played the field, never did any of that. So, so that's the thing, right? So that's a combination of having really good teammates, as he did. If you score 29 runs in a year, then people have to, you know, get you around. But each time he's out there, you know, it's like he can only accumulate stats in one sitting, right? He doesn't get four bats a game. He doesn't get five innings in the field. So to put up those numbers anyway, there's a weird impressiveness to it just every time. It just, yeah. Like, I mean, there are guys who played full seasons who struggled to get 30 runs. And yeah. this guy managed to do it. In, I mean, he appeared in 92 games. So okay. all of his runners. He had 92 opportunities to score, and he scored on a third of them. I mean, that's a testament to his teammates, but you have to imagine that he's doing something to create those runs. Was he good? Is there any, anything noted, like a good first to third guy or like a good second home guy? It's very hard to find that information. I, most of the information about his base running out there is basically just how awkward he was when he was like trying to steal and stuff. But a lot of the games when he scored runs, um, you know, he didn't steal a base. So, you, you know, you wonder how those runs were created. Is it just that he got on and then Reggie Jackson did a home run and anyone could have scored? Or is it, you know, that he actually, he actually produced some runs by being really, really fast? You know, that kind of is a, is a question that, that was the question they addressed on Effectively Wild because his Topps 1975 baseball card, which was considered his rookie card, is actually one of the most collectible cards out there. It goes for $40, which is more than like many Hall of Fame rookie cards from that era. And the reason why it is, is because it is the only card ever produced where the person's position listed is pinch run. Everyone else has like an actual baseball position listed and the position listed on his 1975 card is pinch run. And so it's kind of a rare card. And in the athletic article, he kind of mentions how he still every week one or two people sent him the card asking for them to get an autograph because it's like one of the rarer cards that they have. Because uh, at the time, people weren't collecting them, but then when you know, cards became collectible and people noticed this weird thing that if he's you know, pinch runner only, then they wanted to kind of get that card. But on the back of the card, you know, they do the little write-up on the back of every Topps card. On the back of Herb Washington's card, the writer of the card alleges that Herb Washington single-handedly won the 1974 Athletics nine games that year, which, which Ben Lindbergh couldn't believe, and, and I will, you know, kind of follow up his research 
uh, with a bit of my own to say that I also don't believe this. For one, the 1974 Athletics only won 90 games, which would insinuate the two-time defending champions would have basically been a 500 team were it not for this pinch runner. Um, and I'm not clear that's true. And the other thing is that if you just look at the game logs and you go through, it's not like directly he couldn't have possibly affected that many games. There were six games in which he scored a run and the Athletics won by one run, right? So there were other games where he scored a run and they won, but they won by more than one run, so he obviously didn't single-handedly win that game. So there are really only six games that he could single-handedly have won in the game, and I, and I you know, kind of hesitate to think that all of those are, are, are exactly true. You know. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't think that, sh- that this person is correct or anything. Uh, not that I know the research, but I guess if, if this person could be insinuating that, like, let's say uh, Herb Washington tries to steal second in like the fifth inning and there's a wild throw and this wild this error leads to something happening that turns the game it's hard to track those things as well but they make a demonstrable difference on any game like errors that you create by making plays and you just can't track that it wasn't tracked really as much back then oh i mean i totally agree bj upton you know if you look back at the 2008 world series he totally changed that world series not because of how well he was hitting but just the way he was able to play in the pouring rain because he could just play a sloppy and fast brand of baseball that nobody else could play. There was the game three, was it, when he reached on an infield chopper and then stole second and then stole third and the throw went away and he came home. And like that is single-handedly scoring a run without really doing anything. And that's the kind of effect that speed can have on a game. The other Um, thing that's sort of fascinating about this is that even here, even, even at this point when they're winning three straight World Series, the Athletics were never were, – were always, like, a small market team. They were never a rich team. Like, even during this point, they were struggling to sell. They didn't, they didn't sell out games. Yeah. Like, like, that's unheard of today. You, and, you, championship team, you get, you get to sell out every game next year and the year and during when you win it, you know. And so the fact that they would put $60,000 on one roster spot for someone that is just a runner – that just does one thing and doesn't even do that thing excellently. You got to canonize his agent next week. Yeah, it would probably make Billy Bean hurl. It would. I mean, it's it's not out of character for Charlie Finley, who at some point I'm going to canonize some of his other innovations that people forget about because there are some of the obvious ones that everyone knows, but there are so many that people don't know about. And the ones that people don't know about are arguably more absurd than the ones that people do know about. Um, this is, you know, one of the more well-known ones. But yeah, so, so then going back to, you know, if he single-handedly won the nine games, he also had four games where the A's lost by a run and he was caught stealing um, hmm. a lot of times in the late innings, which means that he took a runner off base in a, in a one-run game that they, you know, otherwise may have had the chance to win. So, you know, for, even for what he single-handedly won them, he definitely also played a significant role in losing them at least four games. So, I mean, uh, you know, mixed returns on the Herb Washington experiment, I, I think for the most part, um, but this was, you know, even when Herb Washington got cut, this was not the end of Charlie Finley's desire to pursue this sort of player. And he kept signing these guys, but he signed them not because they were the fastest people ever, but because they were the fastest baseball players available. Charlie Finley would have loved Billy Hamilton. Um, but the Athletics had not just Herb Washington, but three other players score double digit runs and not have a hit in a season over wow. Kind of era uh, in the in the mid 70s, uh, but one guy who did have a hit 
and, and kind of became the most famous successor to the Herb Washington experiments is a man named Matt Alexander. Uh, they got Matt Alexander in 75 to replace Herb Washington, and then he spent three years in Oakland. Uh, and he, you know, didn't get a ton of hits. He had 12 in his entire career in Oakland, but he had enough hits that he didn't qualify for my, my baseball perspective, or baseball reference play index search. But the thing that is notable about Matt Alexander is that he is the greatest pinch runner of all time. He also doesn't have the greatest ratio ever, 103 stolen bases to 42 caught stealings. I don't know why these people who were given such a leeway to steal just didn't convert that high a percentage of them. But Matt, I mean, and part of it might just be because you know when they're coming in, they're being paid to steal a base. So you're just very, very cautious about it. So maybe converting 65% of your steals in those kind of situations is actually good. But Matt Alexander holds the record as the greatest pinch runner of all time because he has stolen 91 bases as a pinch runner. And that is far and away the most bases ever stolen as a pinch runner. And the Herb Washington experiment helped to launch his career, which ended up you know, becoming like a seven, eight year major league career uh, where he, you know, got like 13 at-bats a season, but, you know, managed to pinch run, you know, almost 30, 40 times a year. So, you know, he, he was, you know, a better fielder, better baseball player, still worth negative one career war, but, you know, it, it was kind of a, you know, a real career born out of kind of a scandalous, not scandalous, but just a kind of stupid experiment. I find it to be the, the oddest of coincidences that, you know, at this time you have the Oakland Raiders who are excellent, and they're owned by Al Davis, who is himself obsessed with speed, Cliff Branch. And then now the Raiders, even to this day, years and years after Al Davis has died, they want the fastest receiver in the game. Look at this past NFL draft. And so you have the same concept for two totally different teams, two totally different sports in the same city. Maybe it's something in the water there. The Warriors have also had really fast small ball teams, whether it's Run TMC or the We Believe Warriors always went small. Mm. I, I guess the Bay Area is just like quirky like that. You know, they like those kinds of things. Yeah, I know. The allure, the allure of speed. I mean, one of the things that, that, that this kind of reminded me of was like when I was little, I got into a debate with my dad who argued that some team should sign Usain Bolt to be a pinch runner. And he was like, he's so fast. He would steal the base every time. There's no reason you shouldn't, you know, it's, he's worth a roster spot. And, and I don't know what Herb Washington tells me about that. I don't know if you guys have any opinions on it. Well, I think one thing it tells you is that being a baseball player is a really important part of whatever you do in baseball. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it certainly tells you that. So I, I don't think, you know, Usain Bolt would be game-breaking, but he's also presumably much faster than Herb Washington. And we're also much better at training people now. I mean, this is just kind of a silly debate, but I think you might be able to pull it off better now than you could have in the 70s. It's, it's funny because, like, part of what makes Bolt Bolt is how tall he is and how much longer his strides are than everybody else's. And that kind of gets kneecapped with 90 feet in between each base. Like, he might almost get hurt trying to slide a little bit too late and then jamming up against second base. So I would, I would rather have him, like, in hit-and-run situations. If somebody squeaks one down the line and right, then Bolt's scoring. You know, that's where I think his, his – he's really weaponized is as somebody who can run when somebody else creates, but it'd be really, it'd be interesting to see certainly if someone could train him. The thing about that is though, Bolt is also really good, maybe better than anyone at controlling his speed. Like he has such a good steady hand on the controls when it comes to like, like we've seen him kind of hot dog in races, but still be first by a long margin. Yeah. So, gold medal races. Yeah. 
So, so I think he, there's definitely like a risk factor there and he would have to learn how to slide well, but I, I think you'd be able to control his speed and temper it there. Yeah, that's one thing they didn't bring up when they were talking about, you know, his, his baseball career. They never talked about him learning to slide. And I think that's like an interesting thing because it's like you watch guys who haven't slid before. Like you watch like highlights of pitchers and stuff trying to slide and they're just like these ugly like tumble. It looks like they're falling over. It's not easy to do. And, and so I, you know, you almost wonder like what, you know, how long it took to teach him how to slide or if it kind of came naturally to her. Weren't they talking about that in the last dance that like MJ wasn't able to slide? I mean, I, I, as someone who hasn't watched The Last Dance, I, uh, I can't weigh in on that. Not yet. Binging? I am going to be binging it. I, I need to at some point. Good for you. Good for you. I will say it was, it was really – it was a great experience to watch it, but I am also jealous that somebody like yourself gets to see it for the first time still. Mm. I will say I did I, – one of the reasons why I think that Herb Washington actually uh, has been in the news a lot in the recent weeks is because of The Last Dance. Yeah. Uh, when MJ was – trying to play baseball one of the things he specifically noted is that he did not want to be like her washington wow yeah so he didn't kind of want to be marginalized as like this guy who was like a gimmicky speed player he wanted to actually play baseball actually get at bats actually hit which is part of the reason he signed with the white Sox because they promised him that opportunity as opposed to other teams which kind of didn't didn't give him the same chance or said maybe we can put you in the majors right away but you're not going to you know play the way you want to so, you know, that's why he opted to come up with minor leagues and stuff the way he did, because he didn't want to be Herb Washington. Right. It would, this whole thing reminds me of when I was in Little League, there was a kid, I'm not going to say his name, but there was a kid who was a better soccer player and played in our Little League. And the only thing he was really good at was stealing bases because he was taller and faster than everybody else or like moving on the base pads. So getting him out wasn't too difficult. But once he was on base, everybody was like worried. And that aspect of like everybody being worried if you're on the base pads is another intangible that a person like Herb Washington could bring to the table, you know, unless he's not been picked off by that point. We had a player who was like that, who came up to the majors the first year he could because he had an older brother that was there. And so uh, our little league like did that, like made that provision. And he was also a much more talented soccer player than he was uh, a baseball player. But the other thing was he learned how to lay down a bunt. Hmm. He could really lay down a nice bunt, and he got on base all the time like that. There were a couple players in the league like that. Yep. Yeah, you'd think, honestly, if you were trying to, to you know, teach this guy who'd never played baseball before or at a high level to be, like, the speed demon fast guy, you'd probably want to teach him how to lay down a bunt. And yep. it doesn't seem like they ever really tried to. They kind of just decided he wasn't going to play baseball, and he was totally fine with that. At one point, the, the A's manager, they were, they were getting blown out. They were down by, like, 15 runs. Nolan Ryan was pitching. And the manager, Al Dark, said to her, Washington, hey, we're not winning this game. Do you want to actually play baseball? Like, I'll put you in. You can play left field. And face Nolan Ryan. And he said he, he was not afraid of Nolan Ryan. But he decided to say no and not play in the game because he wanted to preserve his stat line of of only being a runner. You know, he didn't he didn't want to he didn't want to you know to to do anything else. There's a big difference between zero and one plate appearance, not just at bat, plate appearance, right? There's a purity to that. Yeah, you know, it's, it's definitely a, you know a specific thing. Uh, to catch up with Herb Washington nowadays, after he retired from baseball, he invested his athletics money into a McDonald's franchise. And he actually now is one of the biggest McDonald's owners in all of Ohio. So if you go to a McDonald's in Ohio, good chance that it's owned by Herb Washington. Good for him. And 
also good for Herb Washington. He donated 400 masks to a Youngtown, Youngstown hospital to help with the coronavirus pandemic. And so Herb Washington, stand-up guy all around, McDonald's owner, fastest man to ever play baseball, potentially an absolute legend. I don't know if I buy that he wasn't afraid that he was unafraid of Nolan Ryan. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not so clear of it either. But given the amount of snack he talked, I'm not clear that's you know I'm true. Pulls it in the left. Klesko watches it leave. 4-3 St. Louis. Right now, Brian Jordan in St. Louis is as popular as Michael Jordan in Chicago because of this. I am going to tell you guys about one of the most underrated all-around athletes of the 20th century, Mr. Brian Jordan. Now, Brian Jordan is about as overlooked as it gets because literally at every point in his career, whether it was playing with Deion Sanders, hidden behind Mark McGuire, or being in the same lineup as MVP Chipper Jones, he never got full credit for how damn good he was at two sports, football and baseball. Now, Brian Jordan played during a time when the two-sport athlete was pretty damn cool. Bo Jackson, Deion Sanders, these are two of America's greatest athletic exports. They're legends for their stuff on and off the field. Brian Jordan, was pretty damn close in terms of how good he was at both sports. If you'd look at the all around package, he was not on the same level as Bo Jackson or Deion Sanders, but he also wasn't a Drew Henson case. He belonged in both leagues he played in. So a little background on Brian Jordan, who's mostly a baseball player, but started as a football player. So he grew up in Baltimore right away. He's not coming from SEC country like Bo and Dion, right? Where Florida down south, you get big, strong athletes all the time. He's coming from Baltimore, which is still a pretty good athletic hotbed. But he went to University of Richmond. He didn't go to Florida State. He didn't go to Auburn. He was a first-round pick in 1988 by the St. Louis Cardinals. Obviously, baseball was going to be his sport. That's the one that he was better at. But he was also a seventh-round pick the next year by the Buffalo Bills. Now, he was cut in training camp, which is okay because that Bills team, the early 90s, late 80s Bills team, that team was stacked, okay? It's going to be tough for any seventh-round pick to get on that team. Nevertheless, Brian Jordan, while in the Cardinals minor league system in the late 80s and early 90s, latched on with the Atlanta Falcons, and he played for three years with the Atlanta Falcons from 89 to 91, the same three years that started Deion Sanders' NFL career. And during this time, Brian Jordan had five interceptions and four sacks and was named as an alternate to the 1991 Pro Bowl. We're going to get to how impressive that is based on how much talent was in the NFC at that time, especially on the defensive end. But let's just say that Brian Jordan was no slouch as a cornerback and a safety, a defensive back for Jerry Glanville's late 80s, early 90s Falcons. So by the time the 1992 season rolls around in baseball. Brian Jordan is pretty clearly going to be an MLB player very soon. And the Cardinals want to make sure that he doesn't play football anymore. So in June of 1992, a couple months after he made his Cardinals debut, he was given a $1.7 million signing bonus that said he couldn't play NFL football anymore. We'll give you nearly $2 million, one condition. You can't do what Bo did. Can't do what Dion's doing. No more football. He says, all right. And he ends up playing baseball for the rest of his career, a decade and a half, and it was the right choice. He made a lot of money. But 
not before putting up some impressive numbers in the NFL. So let's go through Brian Jordan's NFL career. Played 36 games in the National Football League, and he started 30 of them. That's 15 in 1990 and 15 in 1991. So 89 was kind of a role player. By 90 and 91, he's starting pretty much every week. He's 5'11", 205, so he's got a really good build for a defensive back. He's not necessarily short, but he's at 205, he's cracking 200 pounds. He's really somebody who can dish out some hits and take a hit as well. So not only did he have five picks and four sacks in those three years, really those two years, he had four fumble recoveries, and he actually had two safeties. He had two safeties in a three-year career, tied for 22nd all-time in terms of career safeties. And in the regular season games that Brian Jordan had an interception, the Falcons were four and one. So he's making an impact for a team that ends up going to the playoffs in 1991. In week 15 of 1991, and this is where things get good. In week 15 of 1991, Brian Jordan was named NFC Defensive Player of the Week. The week before him was Seth Joyner. The week after him was Richard Dent. Here are some other people who won the NFC Defensive Player of the Week Award in 1991. Deion Sanders, twice. Pat Swilling, Chris Dolman, Ricky Jackson, Clyde Simmons, Wilbur Marshall, and Reggie White. That's five Hall of Famers and 23 combined All-Pro selections. And Brian Jordan. That's insane. And do you know who else played in the NFC that year? Mike Singletary and Lawrence Taylor. And they didn't win that award that year. Wow. But they won a lot more awards. And to top it all off, in his second career playoff game, Brian Jordan picked off future Super Bowl MVP Mark Rippon. He was one and one in his playoff career. And his first two playoff games were Deion Sanders' first two playoff games. Deion had his first career playoff pick the week before when the Falcons beat the Saints if you were to ask any Falcons fans, would you go 2-14 and 2-0 and against the Saints? they go, yep. And Brian Jordan played for a Falcons team that beat the Saints in the playoffs. That's pretty darn cool for somebody who ended up as a seventh-round pick. Speaking of NFC defenses, that was an awesome Saints defense. Like the linebackers that they had, that was – That, that was, was the Dome Patrol. Yeah, man. That's arguably the best linebacking core ever. And he and Dion, well, they, they won that game pretty easily. And again, this goes back to the overshadowed aspect of Brian Jordan. His three-year career, like I said, 89 to 91, lined up with Dion's first three NFL seasons. So Dion, in his first three years in the NFL, had 14 interceptions and three pick sixes. But he only had one sack. So Brian Jordan had more sacks than Dion Sanders, who had one sack for his entire career. They probably were like, Brian, to put it in Chris Carter terms, you're the fall guy here. You've got to go make the tackle. He's not going to touch Christian Okoye. you got to go do it. And so he did. He's a pretty well-built guy. Pretty well-built guy. So he's done with the NFL by 1991, but not after putting up some impressive numbers. And he starts playing in MLB in 1992. Now, 1995 was his first year as an everyday player. He's in the lineup every day starting in 95. And he was the most popular Cardinal of the day before Mark McGuire showed up two years later. He was their guy. Brian Jordan was an incredibly popular, well-known baseball player in the mid-90s. His first two years as an everyday player, his age 28 and 29 seasons, he accumulated 10.7 war. 5.5 one year, and then like 5.2 another year. For reference, 
and a heavy disclaimer later, but for reference, Griffey, 8.5, Bonds, 9.3, Maguire, 7.8. Now those kids were in their early 20s at the time and they were an everyday player from day one, unlike Brian Jordan, but still, Brian Jordan's first two years as an everyday player at MLB, he put up higher war than Griffey, Bonds, and Maguire in their first two full seasons playing Major League Baseball. Five wins is about your, uh, your all-star threshold, pretty much. Yeah. And Brian Jordan was only named an all-star once, which if you look at his statistics is kind of criminal because his first year as an everyday player, 296 average, 22 homers, 81 RBI, 145 total hits. All right, maybe you can make an argument, not an all-star. It depends on how the splits are. Sure. Second year as an everyday player, 1996. Brian Jordan's second year, everyday playing in the big leagues. 310, 104 runs batted in. 422 average with runners in scoring position would set the franchise record that would stand for 17 years. He led the majors in average with bases loaded as the cleanup batter. He hit 333 in the NLDS, and he hit a game-winning home run in game four of the NLCS against the Braves. And Tim McCarver, when he hit that home run in game four of the NLCS, said right now, Brian Jordan is as popular in St. Louis as Michael Jordan is in Chicago because of this. And you think Tim McCarver being his usual Tim McCarver self, come on now. The cameras later showed a sign that said, Jordan rules, Brian Jordan, that is. He was really, really popular and really, really good. Here's how I'm going to sum up his early careers in the NFL and MLB. And Brian Jordan's second year, as a full-time starter in the NFL. He was a Pro Bowl alternate. He had a playoff pick, and he won NFC Defensive Player of the Week the same year that five Hall of Famers did it. In his second year as a full-time player in MLB, he hit 310 and had a game-winning home run in the NLCS and finished eighth in MVP voting. He was a fast learner, I would say. One thing that you always like to talk about are, you know, good players on really good teams, you know, just like ultra reliable guys for playoff and playoff winning teams. And the fact that he could do that across two sports is insane. Right. And I grew up as a Phillies fan, just hating this guy because he was such a good brave on those teams that would never stop winning the NL East. And he was a big part of that for a couple of years there in the late nineties and the early two thousands. And in 99, that was his first all-star appearance. And his only one It was his second year with the Braves and like Dion, he won a pennant with the Atlanta Braves. So he has that same check mark on his resume. 1999 statistics are really impressive. Scored 100 runs. He drove in 115. He hit 471 in the NLDS that year and drove in seven of Atlanta's 18 runs. He was a beast in the NLDS for some reason. Uh, pretty good in the NLCS. Two home runs against the Mets. But he's just one for 13 in the World Series, and the Yankees swept him. Wasn't much of a series. Uh, but a solid to above average player well into the 2000s and a guy who you could count on for a big hit in the playoffs time and time again. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at his numbers, they're, they're really impressive across the board. I mean, 98 is, is the, you know, his, you know, probably his best season. He didn't get any MVP votes that year, which is kind of criminal. He did um, the contract with the Braves, so he picked the right sport with baseball, and then he got the money that he ended up deserving. Yeah, 
But, but you know, what's kind of most interesting to me is that, you know, a lot of these guys who get forgotten or get lost to time, part of the reason that happens is because they, you know, aren't that popular. We talked about Bobby Abreu last week, who is a fantastic baseball player, but he just wasn't the kind of marketable star that, like, you know, made, made people recognize, holy crap, this guy might be a Hall of Fame talent. The fact that Brian Jordan is as popular as he was, and at the same time, like, I know his name. I know that he played baseball. I could probably tell you he was a brave and cardinal. I would not have been able to tell you anything else about him. Right. Um, the fact that he's as popular as he was, and you know, he kind of has been lost to history just for all these other reasons, is fascinating. It is. It is. It's at every step of his career, somebody else was doing like the same thing, but just a little bit more like, oh, you're a Jordan peaking in the 90s. Cool. There's this other guy who plays in Chicago. He's doing the same things. When you think when you think Jordan and baseball, you think Michael before Brian. And Jordan only played the minors. And Brian was an all-star caliber player for nearly a decade. And, yeah, it's just like just as under the radar as you can get. And I didn't know this to your point, Jacob, until the last couple of days when I was doing the research on it. Dion had his moments in MLB, but, you know, he was really – obviously – he was Dion. He was prime time. So like he was still like getting a lot of love and getting a lot of attention. But like he's got a career 89 OPS plus. And Brian Jordan has got a career, I think, 102 OPS plus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Brian Jordan was, you know, much better at baseball than Dion. And Bo Jackson is a different story. Uh, it's funny because in 1990, Bo and Dion played each other five times. Dion was a Yankee. Bo was on the Royals. And in one of those games, Bo Jackson hit three home runs and Dion was just giving him props. Like, yeah, you know, it's just a battle of the two sport athletes. Right. And it's such a cool moment in American sporting history. And Bo, Bo is Bo. He hit the three home run. He had the three home run game. So like when you have not one, but two who go by one name, a combined seven, eight letters, like it's really hard to be Brian Jordan and also super well-known because like, again, just overshadowed. So you want to hear about, Brian Jordan's career statistics because it's pretty good. I'm not going to go too deep into the analytics, but I will tell you that over 15 years, Jordan hit 282, 333, 455, and he had 27 RBI and 38 playoff games. Like, yeah. and again, he was a first round pick. People knew that he was going to be good at baseball. He was the Cardinals' first round pick in '88, so it wasn't like he was a flyer. But to live up to that. To be an all-star, to play, you know, the World Series, you know, playing a lot of playoff games. I mean, had a great career, but he played just before everything got recorded and put somewhere. So you Google, you go on YouTube and look up Brian Jordan highlights. You're going to get like a 15-minute video that's silent. You get one thing. By the fourth video, it's going to be like, did you mean Michael Jordan? You know, did you mean like, and you're going to get totally other things. He does not have a lot of highlights on YouTube. And that's another example of how he can be overlooked because there's just not a lot of this very, very impressive athlete. Yeah. Um... The other thing is, so obviously he had a short, if very productive NFL career, right? You know, for two full years was an everyday starter and, and contributed in the playoffs. Do you think if he had been with baseball the whole time, he would have been an everyday player before 28 and he would have had a lengthier, maybe more fruitful career, even though it was, you know, by every standard, a a very, very good career. Definitely. Definitely. I think you're looking at, similar statistics like the 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 counting stats are pretty impressive you know like I I I don't have the numbers of like doubles and home runs and RB but it's like 800 something RBI and it's you know 250 doubles 100 
with th- triple digits in home runs. Good all-around player, you know, like triple digits in stolen bases as well. Uh, Jacob, I'm sure you have like, and I have, you know, we have the uh, the stats up here, but just, yeah, yeah did a little bit of everything. Uh, if you look at his war, uh, it was, you know, if he gets five, he had four years of 4.4 war or better. He had a year of seven war, and it's usually a mix of defensive and offensive war. So he's not just a one-sided player in terms of can only hit. He's a very good defensive player as well, if the war is any indication. So, I mean, yeah, it's hard to knock just the ability of this guy and also also the resume. But I do think if he started playing baseball earlier, he would have had a shot at the Hall of Fame. I think he was, yeah, outside shot, but a shot. I mean, his war is astoundingly high. We just did this last week with Alfonso Soriano when we discussed how Alfonso Soriano's 29 career war was kind of astoundingly low. And yeah. the fact that he picked up 33 career wins above replacement, you know, you say 15-year career, but there's really only seven seasons where he played more than, like, 50 games. Yep. Um, so he's really only got seven years to really pick up a bulk of that war. Um, Cause it's only, you know, it's only 1500 games over seven, over, over 15 years. So you know, it's not, you know, that many games per year that he's playing. And the fact that he basically averaged, you know, four war a year, every year for his peak is, you know, perennial all-star basically, you know, yeah, it's really impressive. It is only one all-star appearance to show for it. And that's not enough, but you know, it's funny. If you look at that war on baseball reference, he put up one war in 93 and 94 as a utility player. So even as a utility player, he's like a, a, a net positive impact on your ball clubs. Clearly you could play and he ended up showing it off, but yeah, just like, yeah. I mean, of his 32.9 career war, he put up 31.4 of it between 95 and 2002. And yep. you could even take out 97 when he only played 47 games. So, like, really, he put up basically his entire career in, in, in seven seasons. And then it's one hell of a seven-season run. Like, it up there with basically a Hall of Fame pace. Yep. Yep. I mean, I like, there are a lot of really good players that aren't going to put up a seven-win season. Like, when it comes to war, seven's a crooked number. That's, seven is a crooked number. And he had that. And that's what got him his big – not the war, but it got his big contract with the Braves after that. And he lived – I mean, he, he gets paid, a, like, $9 million a year, which 20, 20, 22 years ago is obviously a lot of money. still a lot of money. And then he makes the all-star team. You know, like, he's living up to big money contracts and playing every day. And, yeah, just really, really good player. He didn't get a single Hall of Fame vote. Poor guy. And Not lots it. of people with with much worse careers did get Hall of Fame votes. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. I'm pretty sure Aaron Seal got a Hall of Fame vote. Yeah, there are some weird names that got Hall of Fame votes on this list. Vinny Castillas. Like, how did yeah. Vinny Castilla get a Hall of Fame vote when he didn't? I mean, I guess Coors, but like, I don't know. Right, right. Like, this is the just exact kind of player that every good team needs and wants desperately just a guy who you know you don't have to worry about i uh, like he sounds like a good like was he was he he's not in the news he's not in the news he's he's a a broadcaster for the braves now and he has a brian jordan foundation so again like dion is a loud personality bo jackson based on his mythic aura is always going to be near our minds as sports fans especially when we look back and celebrate but brian jordan is just you know a good dude a regular guy not much news on him and yeah, he's just two different sports. All right. I don't want to go on too much of a random sidebar, but I've just discovered something very weird. Um, I was looking at the 2012 Hall of Fame ballot, which was a ballot that Jack Morris was on. And for some reason, baseball reference listed like the hitting stats or the pitching stats for Jack Morris. And I guess the 
Tigers used Jack Morris as a pinch runner because, well, we had just talked about guys with no hits and lots of career runs. Jack Morris has appeared in eight games as a hitter. He has one plate appearance. He has four career runs. Wow. He scored 50% of the times he was on base. And I guess he was a pinch runner because he only had one at bat ever. What I'm learning is you can put up some really crazy stats as just a pinch runner. And I, I guess pinch hit in 87 because there still wasn't early play. He was on the Tigers. Right. Damn. Yeah. But, it's, you know. And this was an early 80s Jack Morris either. Like, this is probably an older vintage of him. So, yeah. I mean, he's definitely he's one of the most competitive people ever to play any sport. So, yeah. I, he definitely got the fire to be on the base pads. I don't know if he's got the speed or the health. He might have actually beaten – I don't know if, what Blue Jays team he was on, but he might have beaten Dion in the uh, 92 World Series, Blue Jays, Braves. But uh, He did. But that's another example right there of just like – Oh, Brian Jordan did something really cool, like win the pennant. So, like, his whole career overlooked. So, you played in MLB and the NFL. So did Bo Jackson. You played playoff games for the Falcons and Braves. So did Deion Sanders. You hit cleanup for the Cardinals under Tony La Russa. Sweet. Mark McGuire hit 70 home runs in 1998. Brian Jordan batted behind him pretty much every day. Oh, you made the all-star team in 1999. Awesome. Chipper Jones is the MVP. Your teammate, he's the MVP's best player in baseball. But how many people can say some, some sentence as cool as, I was in the same secondary as Dion, and I batted right behind Mark McGuire when Mark McGuire was at his best. Like, that's a really unique just sporting anecdote. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, generally in terms of, you know, two-way players being overshadowed, I, I, don't, I don't know why. I mean, I do know why because of the, it's kind of the mythos around it. But I feel like if you ask most average sports fans, and even above average sports fans, you know, about, about guys who played in both the NFL and MLB, they would only say Bo Jackson. I think even Deion Sanders' baseball career swept under the rug because of what yeah. Bo Jackson did. I, I think that basically people only think of, when they think of two-way players, think of Bo Jackson full stop. And that's not true goes beyond you know even Deion Sanders it goes to Brian Jordan and you know guys like that and, and you know there's much more of a tradition of it than people think and that's kind of weird how that you know, ends up being perceived there is I mean you look at people like Danny Ainge right Danny Ainge was good enough to be in training camp with the Yankees and he was also a role player on 67 win Celtics team so like we've had great all-around athletes playing multiple sports for a long time, but it doesn't make it any less impressive. Certainly not for somebody like Brian Jordan, who is putting up crazy numbers right during the uh, height of the steroid era too. So like, you know, this guy has come into a new league and everybody's doing this thing in this new league and it's helping them all get better. And I, he wasn't named steroids or anything like with the Mitchell report or anything like that, but I mean, he, he could really hit the ball. I mean, obviously in the era of kind of hyper-specialized athletes, we're probably not going to see another, another two-way player, at least for a, a- this is a This is a really, really great point and great segue because Brian Jordan was recently quoted as saying, no, he doesn't think this is going to happen again. And for the exact same reason, Jacob, that you said, everybody's hyper-specialized. If you're really good at something by the age of seven, eight, nine, you're doing that something and all the time. And that's dangerous. And that's something that, is a problem, frankly, because if you only work the same muscles over and over again as they're developing and as you're just barely cracking your teenage years, you're going to be screwed body-wise by the time you hit your 30s. You know, kids should play all sports or get the opportunity to do that, and they should play sports season by season. That's what we all did. You know, we all played with the same group of people, but different sports. And so I think that 
we're going to have a lot fewer Brian Jordans down the road unless we start getting back to that. And I think these are really cool people who can play at the highest level of two different things. You know, we should always root for something like that. Yeah. I mean, Kyler Murray being the obvious exception, do we think that there's anyone, you know, who could pull this off, you know, nowadays, even if it's, you know, not as, you know, well publicized? Yeah. And he totally could, you know, and it's funny because like Brian Jordan was allowed to play in the NFL while the Cardinals as a first round pick had him in the minors. So the Cardinals could have said, hey, you're our first-round pick. We're going to pay you a million dollars right now. Don't ever think about the NFL. But he did get to play for the Falcons for three years, and then the Cardinals, you know, brought him to the majors, and he certainly lived up to the first-round pick billing. But, yeah, no, that's a good point. I get, it, it's very few and far between. When you get a clump right there, Dion, Bo, Bryant, you know, like before that, Danny Ainge, you know, you got a clump right there. Yeah, and I, part of me wonders if it is the clump, like there just was an era of a bunch of very uniquely talented guys. Yeah. And part of me wonders if it's, you know, just kind of, you know, what we're doing now needs it to be. I, you know, like, I don't particularly think that Mike Trout sure would be playing football, but I think he probably could if he wanted to. Would you watch that? Oh, yeah. Of course you'd watch that. Oh, yeah. Of course you'd watch yeah. that. Yeah, there, there are a few candidates who, you know, could, who could do it or could have done it. I mean – a few of them are quarterbacks, so you probably wouldn't want to like you wouldn't probably wouldn't want Russell Wilson or Kyler Murray or Kyler Murray or Tom Brady. He got yeah. drafted. Yep. People forget James Winston played baseball. Right. He was like a good like, like that was like a thing. Like you were like, oh, like he could be a two-way star, and that you want a Heisman and that kind of like. And then really and then like uh, Jeff Samarja caught passes at Notre Dame. Terrell Pryor was a quarterback, and then now he's a receiver, but he played basketball too. He was a Big, big deal in, in, in the state of Pennsylvania, at least when he was a high school athlete, for the same reasons. Yeah. And, let's, get and, more, let's get more two-sport athletes. I think, I think it's necessary. The other thing is, like, it also has to be baseball something. Because Terrell Pryor can't play basketball and football. No. Nah, nah, yeah. yeah. Baseball is the only one that happens largely when all the others are done with. Yeah. It's the only chance you have, really. Although if they're going to move all these schedules around now and, and all that kind of stuff, we might we might end up seeing you know guys who can play basketball or football and, and you know things. Plus, if they're people who don't want to play, maybe they got to fill spots. Yeah. So so like and and it also it brings to mind the 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 concept of picking correctly based like Brian Jordan made the right decision to stick with baseball and keep doing it. I don't know that he'd ever been, but again. But then, but then I go back and I go, this guy was a Pro Bowl alternate his second year as a full-time starter in the NFL. If you give that guy only NFL training through the 90s, who's to say he's not going to make an all-pro team? Who's to say he's not going to continue to be, like, one of the better players in the league? You know? So I think it just goes back to show that somebody like this, who is an all-star caliber player in at least one sport, should certainly get a little more shine. Also, that's such a fantastic defensive backfield to have when you've got Dion and Brian Jordan because I mean people are always like oh people like Dion aren't gonna get too many interceptions because you're just gonna pick on whoever's on the other side but when you've got a pro bowler and a defensive player of the week on the other side that is fantastic and then five years later oh you don't want to pitch to Mark McGuire fine here's Brian Jordan and everybody's like shit and the Cardinals win a lot of games because of that so you yeah. are on Dion's opposite and you're right behind McGuire that's that's incredible you know yeah hmm. awesome yeah that was that was great i'm glad you, i i didn't you know like i was like trying to find interesting stories but this guy is just you know he's just a good normal person who stays out of the spotlight and i guess part of that is he wants wants to but he's certainly one of the most underrated athletes of the 20th century 
Yeah, there's a good mix. We're finding a lot of different kinds of people. I mean, like some people are like are like Van Mungo, where it's just like they've got all these, you know, off the field stories or even on the field stories and things like that. But then, I mean, some people are great to talk about just because we don't ever bring them up, but they were fantastic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No question. And I vaguely remember this person, but I learned so much about him that I wouldn't have known two weeks ago. And Barnes hits right high. It's a deep. It is out of here. 7.56. I'm going to go with a canonization that I picked specifically because of our guest, uh, Varun, your passion is play-by-play. Uh, I know that you've, you've logged a lot of hours, you know, studying the finer points of it. Um, it's something I've certainly been interested uh, from time to time. And I know Jacob and I have, have done, did it together back in high school. Yep. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a fine art and I love it. It's, it's something that makes sports so enjoyable. So first, I guess I'll start off by asking you guys, what are some of your favorite calls? It could be from baseball. Mine's going to be a baseball call. It could be from baseball. It could be from any sport. But, yeah, what are, what are some of your favorite calls from history? Well, I think it's amazing that uh, recently Kirk Gibson was on SVP. So you guys know where I'm going with that one. Yeah. What I find amazing about that one is Jack Buck and Vin Scully both had all-time calls. They both had iconic calls. I prefer the Jack Buck vintage. I don't believe what I just saw. But Scully, she is gone. Hits it perfectly. It's like, you know, it's classic, right? It's the 80s. It's the L.A. Dodgers. It's a classic franchise. Everything about it feels like a movie. Not only do you have the best of everything and a guy who's got one swing for a whole series, but you have these two icons of broadcasting who absolutely – nailed the moment so that is the first call I think of when I think of of great calls it it, 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 they're both great there's a great YouTube video that kind of intercuts that moment with uh the final scene of the natural yeah and it it lines up perfectly like if you Uh, you put the Randy Newman score over that it's it's beautiful I think the the best sports movie call of all time is arguably the call of the final home run of the natural um that's just it's got like a great level of audio underneath it. You believe it's from the time period, it gives the right level of gravitas. I mean, that's totally you know a different, you know, different ballpark, but I feel like that is you know underrated sports movie calls go. Um, I don't know personally, one that I always come back to, and this is really random because it's certainly not a legendary moment like the Kirk Gibson home run or you know, like something like that. But there's a um, there's a walk off home run that Andrew McCutcheon hit in, in about 2015, I want to say. I know I was talking to Vic about this game the other day. But the call they give on the Pirates radio broadcast of that is like kind of summarizes to me what makes baseball so awesome because it was just such a roller coaster game and and kind of the exasperation and joy from the broadcasters you you really you feel the moments in a, in a kind of a different way and you're like holy shit I just watched something amazing and as someone who was um, watching the game on TV at the time and I was like holy shit I watched something amazing when I heard that call the next day because I was obviously watching the TV broadcast it was a Fox game. So I got to hear Joe Buck's version of it. I was like, wow, that really summarizes exactly how I'm feeling. And I wasn't even a Pirates fan. So that, that's really special for me, I guess. I, there are certainly a few I could go with. I mean, obviously there's like uh, Shot on Elo. Um, you know, uh, there's... You want to talk about underrated play-by-play? Jim Durham is the Brian Jordan 
of uh, play-by-play guys. Sorry. I, know I know he's your favorite or one of your favorites. Yeah. Jim Durham made the, the ELO call and many other Jordan calls, um, but great choice. And then speaking of another Jordan call, I think, I think Neil Funk did the best one from the 1998 game six shot, right? Jordan to drive, hangs, fire, scores. Yeah. That is Neil Funk. Yes. Yeah. So Costas is, you know, Costas is obviously a legend, but like in all the rebroadcasting of that with like the game six of the movie and the last dance, I feel like they're showing a little bit too much of that NBC broadcast and not enough of, of the local Chicago ones. I agree. But yeah, there are, I could go with those, but the one I'm going to do right now is probably my favorite because I find it just hauntingly beautiful. I find it poetic. And I don't know whether that was uh, the intention. I know certainly you can speak for experience. I know it's impossible as much as you want to say you don't do that. I know it's impossible to sort of think about it. It's impossible to avoid thinking about what you're going to say when you're, when you know a big moment is going to happen. Has that ever happened with you? I, uh, I strictly uh, am against writing it down. Never be against the day of when you get to the ballpark and someone's sitting on, you know, four, two, whatever it was, the co- like you're thinking about it, okay? Well, you're thinking about what you're going to say for Pete Rose's call. But if you write it down, that's weak. It's yeah. got to be about what's in the moment. But you can always, 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 you know. It's impossible not to. It's, it's, it's human. It's human to think. What else are you thinking about? What else are you going to be thinking about? Yeah. And, it, and if, honestly, if you don't think about it, that's probably just under preparation. It's, it, amen. Amen. But don't write it down. Do not write it down. Of course. Yeah. Because um, it does have to flow out of you. So, I, um, so we're going to talk about Dwayne Kuyper's call from Bonds hitting number 756. Because for a couple reasons, I don't think that this is, you know, uh, is one of the iconic moments. I kind of talk about this in Ken Burns baseball where it's like it's, it wasn't the kind of moment that like you wake your kid up for. You know, there was a lot of, eh, okay, this is happening. It's not like I care about it the way I did when – when Aaron hit 715 or nine years earlier when McGuire and Sosa were doing their thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this is sort of like, like obviously a big moment because of what is happening, but also kind of not that big of a moment because it wasn't, it, it wasn't a cultural touchstone the way some other milestone moments, the way Pete Rose's moment or, or others like it were. Um, and, but I, I still think the call deserves, deserves to be up there. We'll start off talking about Dwayne Kuyper. Um, he knows a little bit about being alone. In his first start for the Indians, he was replacing a guy named Jack Roammer, who uh, was a lineup and locker room fixture. And in fact, the shortstop, he was playing second base. So the shortstop, John Ellis, told, Kuyper, told Kuyper that first day, he was like, Hey, Jack Bohammer is a friend of mine. If until you can prove to me that you can play, I'm not going to even talk to you. Gaylord Perry was the starter that day. He was going for 20 wins. And he said, you make any errors, you'll never play behind me when I'm pitching again. And so his major league career, Dwayne Kuyper wasn't really getting out to a really fun start. And it probably made second base uh, a pretty lonely spot early on. Eventually he got the starting job. He got the respect of his teammates. Uh, one time he went through the, pretty lonely experience of an injury rehab when it was absolutely brutal because in the span of a week he was knocked unconscious and had to be stretchered out of a game and then just a week later he like landed on his leg weird when turning a double play and he tore up cartilage and stuff uh in his leg and he had to rehab that for a whole year and he also has one of the most famous 
and loneliest statistics ever. We'll get to that later, though. But Kuiper always did have someone by his side. His father was by his side during his contract negotiations, especially the early ones. Longtime manager Frank Robinson was a great partner of his. Uh, he always had good relationships with his teammates. And, I mean, he's had the same broadcast partner for, like, 20 years now in, uh, in Krakow. So he's had brushes with, with loneliness. Barry Bonds, on the other hand, he had loneliness hardwired into his DNA. Recently, Bonds opened up to The Athletic about his standing in baseball history. He said that he feels like a ghost rattling around in a big empty house. Personally, I can't think of a better analogy to capture the feeling of being ostracized by a community you fought your whole life to preside over. That's loneliness on a Shakespearean scale. It didn't start with Barry, though. Obviously, Barry's father, Bobby, very famous baseball player in his own right, he had to endure the hardships of playing grueling minor league baseball in Lexington, North Carolina, the Jim Crow South. Baseball is already a pretty lonely sport, whether you're isolated in the outfield or standing by yourself at the plate. You pile on the flood of racial slurs Bobby had to face every game. Can't even comprehend how alone he was out there. He was a unique athlete also. He was unlike anyone else in baseball. Um, he had in two Olympian siblings, and he faced massive expectations from his childhood onwards. That's one reason he spent much of his time before games or track meets drinking by himself under the bleachers, even by the time he was 13. He was doing that. His drinking eventually got so bad that it estranged him from his family. Later in his career, while he had productive seasons, he played for seven different teams in seven years at one point. And although he was a phenomenal player, he continued to butt heads with those around him. And uh, Bobby's good friend and teammate Willie Mays also knew a thing or two about loneliness. I mean, it's an age-old story there. Mays was a massive celebrity. And a lot of times you'll hear about huge, huge celebrities that feel extremely lonely because, well, I mean, everyone knows of them, but like who, who really knows them? And everyone wants to uh, sort of pry their way in on his life and it gets in the way of you being a, a private person. You know, he took a dim view of, of a nagging and prying press while well, public attention sort of got in the way of him having a private life. And he also had the, the imposition of, of, of athletes of his time, like Bill Russell and Jim Brown, who had to deal with the fact that they were idolized as black athletes, but still lived in a world that very much treated them and fellow African-Americans as second-class citizens. And that's sort of the, the real difficulty when it comes to, to hero worship in, in sports, especially for a black athlete. And it's, 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 a really, it's a really tough predicament to be in. And so Barry, always a precocious child and few different ways, whether it was baseball or whether it was picking up on the MLB atmosphere that he was exposed to from a young age. Uh, he took these things from his father and his godfather, Willie Mays, his idol, Willie Mays, and they sort of served as his baseball blueprint, right? Never trust anyone, and you can only count on yourself in this game. Barry hardly ever got along with teammates. Too many accused him of thinking he was superior to them and acting like he was superior to them. He was, and he probably thought it and acted like he was as well. Too often he rankled members of the media that would end up crafting the narrative of his career. They regularly heaped praise on teammates like Andy Van Slyke or Jeff Kent, who were frankly nowhere near the player Bonds was, but were white. And so 
that's the way it went. Kent especially could get away with the kind of asshole behavior that Bonds could never even dream of. He is an asshole. This we know. So Bonds was a superstar, but he was constantly poked and prodded at. He was a poster child for Pittsburgh's postseason shortcomings, right? Lack of winning hurt his narrative throughout the 90s. He played for middling Giants teams. He was getting paid a lot of money for Giants teams that effectively went nowhere. And nobody Uh, knocks Griffey for no rings. I was just about to say, Griffey, you know, only made the playoffs a few times, but people didn't blame him for not making the playoffs the way people blamed Bonds for not making the playoffs. Understandably, obviously, Bonds had, you know, bad stints in the postseason in the NLCS with, with Pittsburgh. He batted under 200 through those series, and Griffey probably silenced any, any sort of criticism like that with an insane 1995 postseason with like an OPS around like 1100. So uh, that's part of it. But the other part of it is that he was consistently measured against Griffey. And while he was by a narrow margin of probably a better player, but you know, pretty much neck and neck, pretty much they were the same player. Griffey had love and admiration and, and cultural impact that Bonds just never did. Griffey had a video game deal. Yeah, yeah, man. Bonds Bonds wasn't like a dude the way Griffey was. I mean, Griffey was the kid. Griffey was his own brand. Bonds was, was difficult in ways that Griffey privately, you know, kind of was. I mean, not in the same ways, but Griffey, the, the Griffey story is a lot more complex than a lot of people think it is, but still, um, it, it doesn't have nearly the kind of baggage that, that Bonds does. I mean, we see this when Bonds established the 400 home or 400 stolen base club, but hardly anyone took notice because it was 1998 everyone's attention was squarely on the juiced up sluggers in the NL central that were battling to beat Roger Maris. You know what made that perfect too? Bonds did that in Florida against the Marlins. Can you think of a more, the 98 Marlins, all the good players are sold. 97's long. It's the most irrelevant place in major league baseball. And that's where Bonds does 400, 400. Yeah, absolutely. And because of that, it was sort of cordoned off to the, the back sex, the back papers of the sports section. Uh, as opposed to being a, a, a grand accomplishment already, no one had ever been 300 homers, 400 stolen bases, except for Barry and Bobby. And now Bonds does this, this thing that no one has ever come close to. Part of that is because it's not as clean as he hit 70 home runs in a season, right? That is, that is a really clear, that is something you can say and everyone can understand. But, you know, if I say 400, 400 club, Baseball people get that. Other people, not so much. That's not, that's not like a big thing. Like the single like, home run record is a cultural thing. Yeah, they'd be like 400 what? Yeah, exactly. 400 anything. 400 what? Mm-hmm. Like, you know what home runs are. And even when, they're, when taken together, obviously we know power speed is a big thing, but home runs, stolen bases kind of seems like two disparate things that you're like pushing together. Um, so it's, it's, it's just not as clean as, you know, hitting 62, hitting 70 home runs. So that's when Bonds was faced with the, the life altering choice that everybody in his era was faced with. 
and he made a decision based on years and years of double standards and hero worship and resentment. He chose to do steroids, but he was not alone. Even so, he was treated as though he was because he was the best. Few in baseball have received the barrage of booing that Bonds did. Even fewer had the capability of single-handedly silencing them with one swing in the bat. In the batter's box, one of the loneliest places in sports, everyone was against him at times. Yet time and time again, he made them bend the knee. He was giving them, by juicing up and pimping all these home runs, he was giving them what he thought they wanted. He saw the love of Griffey. He saw the love of McGuire and Sosa. And he was giving the people what he thought they wanted. What he didn't realize was that his entire career, he was kind of giving the people what they wanted. A figure to single out, whether it was based on team shortcomings, selfishness, race, the harsh realities of the steroid era. He was a person that you could single out and a person that you could sort of pin a lot of frustrations on. Let's go back to Dwayne Kuyper and the loneliest statistic of all. A lot of people know this, just like practically everyone knows most of what I just told you. That's not under the radar by any means, but that's fine. It's all necessary to set, to set up this call, right? Dwayne Kuyper knows the impact of a single home run, and that's because on August 30th, 1977, he hit a singular home run. Not only was his only shot of the day or the week or the season, it was the only one of his entire career a good 10-year career. He made dazzling plays throughout that career and had all-time greats like Frank Robinson swooning over him. One lonely home run. It's one of the great stats in all of baseball. Now let's fast forward nearly 30 years to the day. August 7th, 2007, what was then AT&T Park. Bottom five, tied at four, Mike Baxick on the mound. Barry Bonds stands at 755 career home runs, tied with Henry Aaron for most all-time. Aaron is not present. Much controversy surrounds this milestone because of a steroid speculation, so he's decided to leave Bonds alone and offer instead a virtual passing of the torch. Aaron's friend, MLB Commissioner Bud Selig, is also not present. In classic Bonds faction, he works a 3-2 count, even fouls one off, and everyone in the stands, including the man in the booth with one career home run, is waiting for one thing to happen. And on that seventh pitch, here's Kuiper's call. Bonds hits one high, hits it deep. It is out of here, 756. Bonds stands alone. He's on top of the all-time home run list. They say that it's lonely at the top. There was no lonelier climb, and there was no lonelier perch than that of Barry Bonds. To this day, he calls himself a ghost, and Bonds stands alone. That's my favorite call of all time. I don't know how much he thought of it, or the weight of it, or how poetic it was, but Bonds stands alone. There are so many ways you could phrase that, right? Bonds is the all-time home run hitter. Bonds is atop the list. But Bonds stands alone is perfect. It is the spiritual successor 
to the quote that Bonds' teammate had when he was in Pittsburgh. One day, this kid will put up numbers that no one can believe. And then two decades later, that's exactly what he did. Nobody can believe it. Nobody right. wants to believe it. It's reality. Yeah, people don't believe it's 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 the kind of beautiful double meaning that I don't know if Kuiper realized in the moment, but I'm sure he does now. It's, it's, but, it's so perfect. And he puts it into three words that perfectly encapsulate Bonds' entire backstory and how he's been ever since his career ended. Has anybody else ever played 10 years and hit one home run? Has anybody had the number of plate appearances that Dwayne Kuiper had in, in MLB and had one home run? Uh, we'll find out. Yeah, uh, we can find out right now. I'm not sure about that. Um, speaking of Dwayne Kuiper stats, though, we were talking about Herb Washington and his uh, low stolen base percentage compared to his talents for running. Can you guess Dwayne Kuiper's stolen base percentage? 46. Really close. Like, really close. It's like 42. 42, okay. Yeah. He's at Wallace free throw numbers. Yeah, like it's, and he stole 52 bases over his career. Like that's not an insignificant number at all. No, no, no. You want to know something crazy about Barry and 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 the fact that he hit so many home runs, 762 at the end. If you look at the highlights, you can see that bat is tiny. Hmm. That bat is really, really small. Not just for Barry Bonds, but for anybody. Jacob is smiling. Maybe Jacob has found something out. I found something. You can continue with your point, though. No, that was my point. He used a really small bat, and he hit more home runs than anybody other than Josh Gibson. Well, and Alfonso Soriano used a really big bat. Right, right. All right. Dwayne Kuyper does not stand alone. uh, There is only one player with more plate appearances and one or less home runs than Dwayne Kuyper. So basically – in a, in a, you know, divide. If, if for anyone who has a single career home run, Dwayne Kuyper has the second most plate appearances. Gotcha. There are only two people who have this many plate appearances. The other guy is named Davey Force. Um, he played in 1871 to 1886, and he was 5'4", and his name was Wee Davey, also known as Thumb, and he had an outstanding haircut. Like, it's like curls up on his head. It almost looks braided. Um, I, like, just looking at him, it's just it's all, it's all there, the full package. The 5-4, the, the one home run. He was for a 17.1 career war for whatever war you're trying to use from, 19, from 1871 to 1886. But, but Dwayne Kuyper connected across an entire century uh, Kuiper from 1974 to 1985, Davey, we Dave Force from 1871 to 1886. They basically have the same length of career across an entirely different generation. And their numbers also almost mirror each other, with the exception that Davey Force had about 500 more plate appearances. So he has a few more RBIs and a few more. Basically, we live in a simulation. <laughs> yeah, it's basically the same guy who's recreated. Davy Force's OPS was even worse, though. Although both of them are rocking the uh, – actually, not true. Davy Force not rocking that because he doesn't walk. But Dwayne Kuyper is rocking the slugging percentage less than his OBP, which is really wow. 
that's a rare club. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I, not many 271 hitters have a 615 career OPS. That's astounding. Wow. Yeah. And like fourth is um is five four. Dwayne Kuiper is six flat and like 175 pounds. Like, I didn't even know Dwayne Kuiper was a baseball player. Dwayne Kuiper is still then the only player in the modern history of the game, if it starts at 1900, to play 10 years. Well, maybe not, but, but to have that many plate appearances and have one home run. Yeah, only one other player in the modern era has one home run in more than 3,000 plate appearances. His name is Emil Verbon. Wow. 3,000 plate of wow. And how many did uh, did Piper uh, have? Piper had 3,754. Okay, so he's got like a season and a half. Oh, man. Wow. Yeah, and this guy, Emil Verbon, has 3,110 uh, plate appearances. He also has one career home run. Emil Verbon, a two-time All-Star with the early 40s Phillies. Who would have known? Wow. <laughs> Emil Verbon in the early 40s. Huh. Okay. Because there were – I'm watching baseball, uh, you know, Ken Burns, and, and, and there was talk of, like, in the 30s and 40s, the uh, Reds had a couple of players of Cuban descent who were lighter skinned. So it, it was just like, uh, you know, obviously it's all bullshit from that shit. But, like, to, to, for somebody with the name Emil Verbon, I wonder the heritage. I wonder the skin tone and, you know. Well, that's what I was thinking about. I was like, what the heck is this heritage? And so I look, he's a three-time All-Star for his career. Oh, you know, but he's not a three-time All-Star. He's another one of those guys who made two All-Star games. Uh, in one year? <laughs> yeah, okay. In the same year. Because he's only got two years of All-Star production. But I guess I guess in 40, it must be 47, uh, when he was a Philly, he made two All-Star. That's not, he's actually only a one-time All-Star for the Phillies. Um, he made two All-Star games for the Phillies because he made them both in the same year. Um, but he's from... He's from Illinois. He's from Quincy, Illinois. So I'm not clear that that, that doesn't scream like, you know. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Might be from, I mean, I, there's lots of reasons someone would be nicknamed Dutch, but his nickname is Dutch, which leads me to believe that maybe he is of like Dutch or Curacaoian descent. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Vic, this this call, like, how long has this been your favorite call? Oh, this is this is sorry, sorry, I, I hate to interrupt, but I got one more thing. I'm looking at Emil Verbon's page, and not that I, this is unexpected, but um, they do the similarity scores on Baseball Reference, and his similarity score number one match is Dwayne Kuiper is a 9.52, and no one else is even close. Wow. It's like Dwayne Kuiper, Emil Verbon, everybody else. That makes sense. That's yeah. Sense. Um, Bruin, you asked how long this has been my favorite call. So we've we've got a, a DVD box set of of Ken Burns baseball, um, and and it's up on Prime. So I've I've watched through that so many times. It's fantastic, and never gets old. Yeah, never. never. And and the one thing, and like there are a couple quibbles I have with the tenth inning, but the one thing I love is I love the Barry Bond story. It's it's like Homer could pen an epic poem about about the whole Barry Bond story, and I'm I think that's kind of what Ken Burns like sought to do with the tenth inning because they spend so much time on Barry Bonds, rightfully so, um, and I it just was watching that was watching the the bottom of the tenth, and they talk about the night that he hit seven fifty six and 
mostly about the anti-climax of that night, you know, people being like, you know, commissioner wasn't there. Hank Aaron wasn't there. I didn't wake my kids up to see it. You know, there's a, there's a bit of highlight uh, from the 10th inning and it's, it's obviously citizens bank park, right? It's obviously Philly. And there's just this banner that says Ruth did it on hot dogs and beer. Aaron did it with class and it's right above the flower beds in left field. And it's like, yeah, that's a good way of, you know, cause I, I saw bonds hit five ninety seven. I've never seen somebody hit a home run quicker. Like he swung, like, you know, my dad and I, Vic, our dad, like we went to the vet. This is, I think 2001, uh, so maybe, maybe a little bit later, but we all go to see bonds. He's the show. <laughs> and you know, we're sitting up there first base side, upper deck and bonds twirls his bat a couple times. I don't even know what the count was, but I remember hearing him make contact. And then I kind of looked to the right and the ball was knocking up against the bullpen wall over the fence, like 340, 50 feet away. And it was like a second and a half. I've never seen somebody hit a ball so fast and so hard and so far so quickly, but it's like, yeah, that's the show. You came to see the show and it was just like that. And it's so, and, and I love when people call it, especially him himself, you know, calls it the show because that's another thing that's so insane about bonds is that consistently when everyone is expecting him to, to hit a home run and, you know, he's only getting one or two worthy pitches per game, he rarely fails. And he always seems to just capitalize on the one little opening he'll get and he will make you pay for it. And he has to work a three, two count because no one's going to give him anything honest before that, you know, like they're going to wait until they absolutely have to throw one near the plate and, and he hits it. And even sometimes like they just won't, they'll quit. They'll just yeah. take first base. Yeah. With the bases loaded. Jerry Bonds. Yeah. And, you know, there's been a lot of discussion, you know, now the last dance is over and, you know, I've already talked about the fact that I haven't watched it, but there's been a lot of discussion about like who you'd like to see that kind of a documentary about next Iger. That answer is far and away Barry Bonds. He has the most Iger. interesting arc, the one of the most untold stories that like, you know, there's, there's, there's got to be so much that went on behind the curtains there. Yes. You know, steroids, records, you know, whatever. I feel like that would be, you know, you know the most interesting thing. And I, I think without a doubt, we're going to name that documentary Bond Stands Alone because that is just such a great and poetic name. It's a poetic call. It, it's got everything. Yeah, Tiger, I said Tiger, and I still believe that. We're going to get a 10-parter on Tiger. He's as important an American athlete as has existed. But we kind of know all that. We know about the infidelity, the car crash, the sex addiction. We know about all that stuff. When Tiger spoke about his infidelity and all that, the world stopped to listen. But when Bonds hit 756, the world didn't stop. Like, there is a lot, to your point, Jacob, that we don't know or that we don't understand, frankly. And so, yeah, when you look at, and obviously Bonds isn't anywhere on the level of bad person as OJ, but the great, great American athletes, the most compelling captain, Ruth and Mantle and OJ and Tiger and Michael and LeBron and Bond, like these are the people that get those 10 parters. And I would love to see a deep dive on the life of Barry Bonds. I'd like to see one on Griffey too, but like you said, Vic, it's just a little bit different. And I'd like to see Bonds as first. A lot of times I feel like, when we talk about players, you know, we sort of 
take the narrative that we want and we run with it, obviously, because, you know, obviously a lot of things happen, but it's, it's never really all one way. You know, it's always like everything happened, but we take a little chunk of it and that sort of fits our narrative. And so we run with that. And because of that, partially, I think there are a lot of really poetic and, and epic things you can assign to the Barry Bond story. But I honestly feel as though those things are, are true. You know, everything that you take with the Bond story. I, I really think that, the, that, that Bond stands alone doesn't just fit a narrative, but I think it, I think it rings true. Yeah, and so to answer your question, it, it it became my favorite call when I sort of caught that upon a viewing of the bottom of the tenth, and uh, I I was like, wow, that I sort of had to pa- I had to pause it and be like, wow. Yeah, I remember like you know, so I my first favorite athlete even before Alan Iverson was Sammy Sosa. This is like '99, right around when Sammy Sosa is one of the most popular people on the planet, and basically it's it mirrors the 10th inning but a lot of baseball viewing in the 2000s was done in a supreme court hearing room you know it was as much about mark mcguire and rafael palmero sitting in front of those thin mics as it was about them up at the plate and that really put a damper on the whole thing and i do think that remembering 2006 2007 like People were shrugging their shoulders, like like proudly shrugging their shoulders. Like we don't we don't we don't want to deal with this anymore. And so mm-hmm. I think that baseball, I think that there's a, you can have a lot of debates about the health of the sport, but there's no doubt that between the '94 strike and the steroid era, there's a lot of people that just I'm done with the sport, and only some of them have come back. You know, the sport is still fairly healthy, relatively speaking, but that isn't to say that it didn't lose a lot of people along the way the last 25, 30 years. Yeah, this was, Jake and I were sort of talking last night about, like, the the era that the Phillies were good and the fact that they were such a good team, but, like, all of their guys are pretty much borderline Hall of Famers. And when you talk about that era, there aren't a whole lot of, like, all-time greats that really stand out. Like, even if you talk about Miguel Cabrera, like, that's right smack dab in his peak. But you think about young Miggy in the World Series in 03, or you think about Triple Crown Miggy a couple years later, later in 2012. Right. And uh, we were also talking about like the fact that Jose Bautista was such a revelation when he hit 50 home runs, like yeah. the rebirth of the 50 home run season, this time presumably clean. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, now people are hitting home runs more than ever. Yeah. And ostensibly they're doing it clean. Yeah. The players aren't juicing. The baseballs are. Yeah, exactly. Baseball. I was say, they're doing, the players are clean. I'm not so sure about the baseballs. The baseballs no, the baseballs are not. But that, that that's baseball going like, listen, home runs bring people to the ballpark. Home runs put eyeballs on the screen. If we don't want these people cheating, we'll just, you know. But if they're going to do that, they can't do that and then, like, not do it in October. Like, I, I feel like it, it's so weird because they change it for the playoffs every time. And home balls that are home runs during the regular season, I guess, to get views are – they go back to real baseball in October. It's weird. I mean, baseball is always talking about shortening the game, speeding things up, fewer visits, yada, yada. They're not doing shit for the World Series. A World Series yeah. is going to be played the way it was played in 1905, the way it was played in 1925, 55. They're going to just take their time with it. They're not, so they're not going to impose the rules on the most important part of the game. And 
right. it's hard to find credibility for some of it. It's hard to like mix it in, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I really had a lot of fun in this episode. We talked a lot about a lot of different things. Um, Varun, thank you so much for, for coming on. You were, thank you for uh, having me. This was a blast. Yeah. Yeah. I now preach the gospel of Brian Jordan. Thanks to this show. There you go. Exactly. I think, I think we, uh, accomplished our goal of which we have every episode of talking about things that generally don't get talked about, even though this seemed like Herb Washington week. Uh, if you're following fan graphs and the athletic, um, this, uh, Hey, just, that's just great minds think alike. That's all that is. Yeah. I mean, it's really astounding. I had discovered this, and I was so proud that I thought I was the only person to discover this. And within 24 hours, I discovered that Herb Washington was the topic in baseball media, and I don't know how that happened. Uh, yeah, parallel thinking there. I mean, honestly, like you, like I can, I can attest. You started your research and stuff like that before you discovered any other content out there on him. And I think they, I think you told a unique, a unique side of things. From what I'm, from what I, I'm given to understand. Yeah, yeah, I just had to meld some takes together, you know, kind of. Yeah. Kind of I mean, we also know that part of that was a glimpse into the, the Charles O'Finley sort of thinking of the designated runner. And Oakland loves speed, right? And Oakland, and Oakland, Oakland loves speed, and we'll hear more of Charlie Finley moving forward. I have got some little Harvey stories to tell, and, and among others. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for joining us, and thank you all out there for listening. Uh, for Jacob Wessels and Varun Raghupathy, I'm Vic Raghupathy saying, see you next time.